Welcome to Postscript, the subtext after show, where we talk about things related and unrelated to the week's episode. This is Aaron Alonick. And this is Wes Alwyn. So we just got done talking about It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, well, I guess we didn't just get done. We're going <laughs> to do a little bit more talking about it um, and specifically about Clarence and the Martinis. And maybe a little Uncle Billy, too. And Uncle Billy, how do you how do you feel about the <laughs> an Italian family being called the Martini? First of all, love it and owning a bar to boot. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of the tradition of last names telling you what you have to do. Um, and it, it sets up an important joke in the film. I hope it's not only just for that. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the Martini family is really like so. It was so important, I think, to to me as a kid, and and I think it was really self conscious choice on on Capra's part to put basically like a version of his own family into, into Bailey park, you know, and, and to have Potter be also like an anti-Italian bigot too. Right. He says that, uh, that George is, does he want to play nursemaid to a bunch of garlic eaters or something like yeah. that? There's a real significance to the fact that Bailey park has people in it that would not ordinarily be allowed in these types of, um, you know, single family home communities. Yeah. We get several nods towards the importance of immigrants, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I love all those little kids piling into the back of the car mm -hmm. with a goat. It's, that is so, so typical, you know, my, my grandparents themselves, after they were married, they lived for a few years in the upstairs unit of a, of a multifamily house where downstairs lived my grandmother's, you know, Italian speaking parents in, in New Haven, but then they saved up their money and, and they moved into kind of like the equivalent of Bailey Park, uh, this post-war residential neighborhood of single family homes just outside New Haven, where they raised their kids and where my grandmother still lives. And, and Wes, you've been to that house, mm -hmm. very, very small house and uh it's just great to see that and to and to know that capra too like as as an immigrant and as like part of this very american um <laughs> tradition is including immigrants as part of that vision of a ideal small town life which is cool and it, it's interesting you know you're you're talking about the business versus personal and and the commerce and professional life and work versus the familial and the, the communal mm -hmm. and in this case you know Immigrants play a role in both of those, right? So for Potter, it's it, just people to exploit. There doesn't seem to be a lot of thought of, by him about their social role. You know, he's sort of casually racist towards them. And I think he also, you know, he makes a reference to a discontented, lazy rabble at, at a certain point, which I take mm -hmm. to be just like the worky working class. And, or, or, and he contrasts that to a thrifty working class, I guess. So that's, that's his ideal but for him, the, the existence of that social stratum, it's just there for him to be an object of his predation, right. let's say. And then there's the role of immigration and growth, right, in the ex expansion of the United States, including its uh, economic expansion, very important to that. But also, right, it, it, they, they play an important factor in the development of the social fabric. They're not just incidental to it. Or as someone like Potter might think, a, some kind of detriment to it. Right. And I think part of the implication of his his statement about that thrifty working class thing is the idea that if you give them homes that are too nice, then they're not going to mm -hmm. bother working as hard. Um, so he wants to keep them in poor living conditions, maybe to, you know, maybe there's a little bit of social Darwinism inherent in that, that they'll want to work harder to improve their station. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of wonder if Potter is supposed to be, you know, there's that part where... Potter sort of taunts George, who's come into his office to ask for the $8,000 that that Potter has 
stolen. I wonder about Potter as a figure, if we're supposed to take him as a literal person or if he's really just too mean and ridiculous to be anything but a, but a symbol of like fate or generalized forces of evil. But anyway, that scene is interesting to me because he says to George, you know, you once called me uh, warped, frustrated old man, something like mm-hmm. that. And, um, and he says, well, you're a warped, frustrated young man. And I do think there's supposed to be um, inherent in Potter himself and yet another alternate reality thread there for what George might have become, maybe. Is he supposed to be the the sort of inner psychology of of George or or the, you know, what George might be if George really put his entrepreneurial skills to work? Because here we have a man who's put up a lot of buildings and done, you know, on a small scale, done a lot of things that George had the ambition to do. So you're thinking about Potter as a, a reflection of a different possible future for George Bailey, is that the... Yeah, or maybe even the, the devil on, on George's shoulders. Right. Or shoulder, uh, the one shoulder. <laughs> right. Well, he offers him a job, right, at one point that is... Mm-hmm. I, I did the currency conversion, equivalent of three or $400,000 a, a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In today's yep. money. Wow. Very hard to resist. Well, and also I wonder if, if the idea of joining forces with Potter... Is necessarily so negative. I mean, it is. It is in the configuration of this film, so it is the possibility that he couldn't join forces and 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 integrate a little bit more compassion and a little bit more of his own ideals into the way that Potter's structure works. Change the system from within. Well, exactly, and and also this idea of of Potter as being it's a it's a curious one because Potter is so mean that it's like he's beyond conversion. You know, he's obviously a Scrooge figure, but a Scrooge who does not become converted. Mm. And so as the the soul thrown into the outer darkness, I think that, that's a little chilling. You know, I mean, I want to see, I'm, I'm not a total softy or anything, but it, I would like to see Mr. Potter experience a conversion. I don't know. Maybe I'm asking too much. <laughs> Isn't that what the devil says to Jesus in the desert? Join me and you can change the system from within. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it is. That's right. That's and, right. and Darth Vader to Luke Skywalker. No, you're right. It's, it's, uh, I'm yeah, no, I'm just kidding. But, but yeah, no, I, I get that. I mean, and I was just making that joke because that's part of the temptation, right? Well, no, I think there's something to that. Yeah. That it's impossible to change the system from within, according to that formulation. If we take right. Potter as being a, a devil figure. Or it's, um, I, I think maybe the danger is that, you and it's a very realistic danger is that you will simply get corrupted by it you will start to speak that language and get integrated into that culture so that Mm -hmm. the good that george bailey might be able to do in that position will get undermined because it will transform him as a uh, as a person you know do the sort of thing that you were bringing up before which has created different possible future for him create a different variation on on george bailey right I think we all face this problem because we are all worried about making a living for most of us, right? We're worried about mm-hmm. making a living and we are always engaged in this rationalization to one degree or another, you know, to what extent do I need to sell out? And it's not just about making a living. It's about being part of an institution. It's about being a part of a community, right? So, but that always comes with constraints and it comes with influences. So for instance, if I, become a professional philosopher, for instance, right? If I'm tied to the academy and my bread and butter has something to do with publishing and delivering presentations at conferences, can I actually do the thing that I want? You know, this was a 
dilemma once upon a time for me. It's not anymore. But can I do the thing that I really want to do, which is to be completely authentic, right? Which, which seems to mean being completely free and not tied to the expectations of others and not tied to the criteria of professionalization and, you know, and scholarship and all those things, which seem to just sort of chip away at originality and creativity. So we have to make these decisions about being tied to institutions and the necessity to make money and, and all of that stuff and the conflict between that and who we might be if we can remain um, free of those influences. And again, it's, it's, it's even more complicated because we need those influences. We need, you know, as I pointed out, we need obligations and expectations and the recognition of others and, and their demands in order to do our work on a day when we might not feel like doing it. I mean, the other aspect of the immigration story and the martinis is just the that aspirational component, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the communal for the martinis means several different things. There's the, the community they bring with them. There's a community into which they're being integrated so that in a way, the conflict between aspiration and community is different, right? In some ways, aspiration right. lines up with community. I'm moving to America. I'm, I'm becoming part of this place so that that sort of integration is freedom, I don't know that if you were thinking about any of that with the martinis. The mere fact of being welcomed into Bailey Park represents the realization of an ambition, right? Yeah. And, and still being able to be uh, oneself. What I love, too, about that sequence is the fact that they are still, you know, they're still coming with the goat. They're still, uh, <laughs> you know, they're still getting a blessing where they're, they're crossing themselves with bread and the wine, right? Um, so that it doesn't involve having to sacrifice their values, but they can be integrated as themselves into this, this uh, idealized community and not have to, um, you know, do the things that a lot, of, uh, a lot of people had to do, which is to, you know, try to quash that, that part of their identities um, in order mm-hmm. to integrate properly. The thing I was thinking about uh, Potter too, which might lead us to Clarence, is this idea that that Potter is kind of like a supervillain, you know, uh, which is another his his extreme meanness and his mm-hmm. um, his slyness is a supervillainy, and I think it's funny that uh, and very very appropriate that on the other side we have you know the dumbest angel of all the of all the <laughs> angels. <laughs> um, I think that's also very with the, true. The dumbest name, Clarence. Oh, he's so. Hey, wait I a say minute. that as someone wait whose name is Clarence. <laughs> yes, I'm allowed. I'm allowed to say that. That's <laughs> Being right. Being a Clarence myself, yeah. Right. Who goes obviously by a different name. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet Henry Travers. I, I think the stupidity of the angel, the stupidity of goodness um, is really important here. You know, it's a common theme of the childlike faith or, or the holy fool too. Um, but I, I love the part where Nick, uh, kicks them out of the bar in the alternate reality. And then, uh, we see him playing with his cash register and saying like, get me, I'm giving out wings, <laughs> you know, making it, uh, making the bell ring. There's something in that that strikes me as being really important. It's like the movie's uh, self-awareness of the kind of um, sentimentality of the bell ringing uh, and the kind of, I guess, um, how easy it is to make fun of goodness mm. and to, to make fun of innocence, I think. He calls them pixies, right? Yeah. Um, and I yeah. don't know if there was, 
if the insinuation was that they're gay as well, but at the very mm. least that they are not manly and there's a connection between not being manly and, and being unrealistic, let's say, right. or prone to silly fantasies or something like that. And that that in itself is tied to goodness. So if we're if we're good, we're not tough and we're not realistic. Right. That moment is just, you know, aha, you know, Nick has Nick has found the loophole in faith. You know, that, that's the that's everything that everybody wants to wants to point out. Right. About, um, you know, gee, isn't it stupid to believe in uh, in religion? You know, um, the, the look how silly it all is. Of course, that's the point. Um, or right. part of the point anyway. So I, yeah, I just, I love that moment, but Clarence turns out to be, you know, it turns out like a stupid, uh, stupid angel is better than a super smart devil. Right. We get deceived by our intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. We, it's not our, in an ethical sense, we, um, we get duped, not because we are too dumb, but because we're not dumb enough in some sense, because we're too smart. And we, this goes again towards the whole God thing that we we're so smart that we can rely only on ourselves and only on our own intelligence for guidance rather than something that is outside of us. And what looks dumb about someone inside the religious moment to someone outside it is just that they would rely on something that, um, for which there is no rational explanation or no obvious uh, material motive or something like that. Mm. It's dumb in the sense that it is uh it reaches towards a inexplicable foundation and what's inexplicable is uh we find ourselves dumbfounded in the face of what's inexplicable. Right. The one thing I wanted to say too is just how terrible the the ending message is that he writes in the book. Um, <laughs> the idea that uh as long as you have friends, you wrote it's like it kind of undercuts the strength of that that final scene for me. Yeah, what are the words exactly? Remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Thanks for the wings. Love Clarence. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that that really misses the mark. <laughs> well, I was wondering actually this earlier. I, f- I forgot to bring it up, but you know, what do you do? That we don't have to discuss it now because we're ending, but you know, if you tell the story about it, someone who's not George Bailey, right? How do you tell it about one of the other schlubs in the film um, where they don't exist? Can you tell the same sort of story about the detrimental effects of their not being there? Does one have to be a George Bailey to be so important to the social fabric? Right. And that's a really good question. I think that George's personal popularity can't be the message at the end. Right. Because it's still having a lot of friends is still not part of what this is about because it's still implying some kind of worldly, you know, I take the ending to be kind of, you know, on the one hand, uh, literal, on the other hand, symbolic, where he's he's being able to see the the rewards, the heavenly rewards of what he's been able to accomplish on Earth. And that is just a result of of good deeds. It's not how many friends you have. I just, you know, I worry in a, in the Christmas months, especially where people feel very lonely to then have a movie where you're told that as long as you have a lot of friends, you'll be okay. That's tough for me. Yeah. It's tough for me to reconcile. You know, just thinking about the scenario in which it's Gower or someone else who's right at the bridge, ready to yeah. throw themselves off. And, you know, the, the argument that one might make is that there's a lot that's just it's not just a matter specifically of bailey's good deeds but it's it's really a matter of contingency because he's he's a linchpin not just in the sense that oh he's the the guy with the most friends in town and the guy who's most important morally to the town or something like that um or or you know in terms of good deeds but that if you remove him 
this that it might not happen, but it's it's always possible that you interfere with a lot of other forces for good. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the his brother he saves his brother so that his brother saves a whole troop carrier, right? Right. And the troop carrier would not have been saved if it weren't for him. And you know, yes, so it's a good deed. He saves his brother, but it's also it's a matter of happenstance that his brother ended up in the water and. And likewise, he wasn't there to save Gower from going to prison. So the the charitable reading here is it's not just that what's important is not just the fact that Gower goes to prison as kind of the the end point of all this, but Gower's influence on the town is lost as well. So that Gower is also a good person with good effects and that, that order and that the whole order can get unbalanced by simply subtracting someone from it and it and it could be anyone because they are they are already integrated into the community right they already have a have an important role in the community and that when people do disappear abruptly it causes problems you know and we have rituals we we have ways of of you know the mourning people is not just about you know about our personal grief but mourning people is about repairing the rent and the social fabric so to speak but if they are simply ab- abruptly subtracted with no real transitional moment or, or let's say, a, a ability to process it or reflect on it, had this kind of uh, dystopian result, let's say, which is what we get with, with Bailey. But I'm, I'm suggesting we, we might get it with less significant people. Yeah, well, I hope that's true. I, I really like your, your idea that one of the most significant implications of George's non-existence is the idea that the whole transport of soldiers dies mm-hmm. as being, your idea of it as being really in, like incidental and or mm-hmm. accidental, because I think that's really important that there's this yep. idea that, uh, you know, we're being worked through in ways that we don't even realize that we don't recognize. So the idea that maybe, you know, Ernie, the cab driver had picked somebody up and, and given them a free ride or, or, or gotten to them at the right time to prevent, you know, a whole catastrophic series of events happening might also be just as significant mm-hmm. and, and the, the ways in which we're being used. I mean, that in the, in a, in a good way, used in a good way for carrying out interventions of fate in ways that we are not ourselves aware of. Oh, right. It's like yeah. a really That's beautiful element of this. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. It's a don't interfere with fate. Or try, even as we found out from our Oedipus episode. <laughs> right. Just make things worse. Right. But maybe we're all we're all little versions of our own Clarences in ways that we don't know. And we may not be directly sent down from from a, a you know, a flickering Joseph star to uh <laughs> you know, to come in and, and to have that effect because maybe maybe we don't need that kind of direct intervention so literally enacted. But maybe right. sometimes we're we're acting out those interventions in ways that we will will not find out until we die, if ever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I like that. Great. Thank you. And Merry Christmas again. (laughs) Merry Christmas.